Welcome to the show that is always up to speed with Formula One. This is the, and I always mispronounce it, and I'm super, super embarrassed because of it, but the Scuderia F1 podcast. Like I said, the podcast that is always up to speed with F1, but not, as a number of our eagle-eyed listeners detected, not up to speed with IndyCar when last (laughs) week I said Kevin Magnussen won the Grand Prix of Detroit on Saturday when, of course, it was Formula or former F1 driver Marcus Erickson. Although conveniently, and thank uh, thank you to our good listener Michelle G for calling this out, Kevin Magnuson ended up at least with a part-time IndyCar ride this week. So maybe inadvertently predicted that, but we're a couple of days away from the French Grand Prix. Free practice kicks off tomorrow. Tons to talk about, not least of which is the entire tire gate, which has spilled over from Baku. That story does not seem to be ready to pop anytime soon. My friend, how are you? I'm good, man. It is uh, Thursday, almost Friday. I'm ready to get my weekend on. I'm re- I was grilling outside this evening. It was it was a beautiful day here in Vancouver. Warm, not hot, just extremely pleasant, pleasant bit of a breeze. I, I'm feeling it. I'm I'm totally ready for summer. I mean, we haven't had very much summer weather just yet. You know, June could be wet around here, but the last couple of days been beautiful, and I'm ready to get summer going 100%. So, you made a great point yep. too that your sounds like your kids get to see their grandparents again for the first time yep. in a while. Um, yep. I didn't mention this, but we're going to see my parents on Sunday, and I think it's cool. probably been about nine months since. So, I've I've got a little one as well, um, a three and a half year old. So, I think it'll be the first time that he's since them since maybe last summer. So, it's been forever, and I think in your case, again, it's been forever since the kids have been able to interact with their grandparents. So they must be super excited. Oh, totally. You know, I've I've been making this joke uh, ever since the start of the pandemic and all the social distancing and stuff like that. For some relationships that we have, it means far less social contact. For some of us, about the same as usual. You know, the, the, the people that you see once every year or year and a half or two years, that never changed. But, you know, it is, you know, all joking aside, is it exciting to see everything kind of starting to go back to normal? It's great to turn on the TV and see sporting events and people out in public and people doing things again. I'm starting to feel uh, good. And I, I'm glad to see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But like you said, the, the one thing that I can't get out of my mind this week is just the fact that this whole tire gate thing just won't go away. It's the story that just will not uh, refuse to, to, to die. You know, we, well, we'll talk about it in a moment because there was a couple of things I wanted to get to uh, first that if, you know, we, we get into it, it's going to be uh, kind of like uh, buried a little bit uh, further down. So couple of weeks still until the British Grand Prix at uh, at Silverstone in uh, in the United Kingdom of course and so apparently that uh, in the UK they're going to delay the end of the lockdown and the sort of the return to normal by another uh, 4 weeks or a month and uh, pardon me the July 19th is uh, when they they get back to um, uh, normal that's not the necessarily the day of the race but it uh, you know there was some talk at one point to basically fill Silverstone. So this may or may not uh, happen. So outdoor events at the moment in the UK, and I didn't know this um, until I did a little bit of reading about it, is twenty or sorry, 10,000 people or 25% of the venue's uh, capacity. So whichever is the, the lower number. So it is, uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens because I mean, there's obviously people in the stands for the Euros, you know, if you've been watching a lot of soccer, which I've been doing for the last uh, almost a week now. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I kind of think about it, you know, as like, I, I have a, you know, 
I sometimes feel a little bit uncomfortable now, and I think it's just a psychological thing, having lived through the whole pandemic the past year and a half. It feels a bit weird to see people and stuff like that, but when you see like indie, you go and turn on, you see like a baseball game, you see the stands filled and stuff like that, that you know, maybe I need just to, to chill out a little bit. But however, if they get it going and they get people in there, I hope that they do get the maximum amount of people into the stands at Silverstone on July 18th because it's such a great race. It's such a great atmosphere. And you know that the home support is just going to power Lewis. Uh, he's going to give him an extra 50 horsepower at least. And it's always uh, it, it's always a great event. So I, I'm just hoping that it's it seems to work fingers. because he tends to win there every yep. single year, it would seem. But I agree. I was really, really, really excited. And I think obviously the 140,000 people that have bought tickets for that Sunday race um, could be equally as disappointed if there could be some cap or restriction on the numbers. I have a sneaking suspicion that given the uniqueness of the event and what it means to British tourism as really a, a tentpole flagship event for the sport and for sports in the UK as well, I have a feeling that they're going to find a way to make this work. This is really different than sticking 80,000 people in the confines of an outdoor football bowl. This is 140,000 people that are spread around a six mile or six kilometer track. I've walked around Silverstone. It takes two hours. It's a long walk. <laughs> My wife is angry every time I make her do it. And I've done it twice. <laughs> and it's so funny because every time I promise it'll be shorter than last time. And of course it isn't, but it's a big track, right? Like I yeah. think from a, a population density perspective, if you're willing to put 10,000 people in a grandstand or 22,000 people in a football stadium for one of the Euro 2022 matches or Euro 20 matches, I guess, if you're willing to put 22,000 to 40,000 people in a bowl, you can spread 140,000 people out over six kilometers. I think they're going to find a way. Um, maybe they do some things in terms of entry exit to get creative, to make sure you don't have big lines and things like that. I have a feeling they're going to be at 140, if not very, very close. I just, I think this event means so much to the country. And I think from the government's perspective, I think they'd always targeted this as that inflection moment where it changes from we're in a strict COVID mentality to things are getting back to normal. And I think it's important for everyone, least not least of which are the fans that have bought tickets to go. And I've been to Silverstone. It, I've been to Silverstone so many times. It's such a magical place in terms of atmosphere. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I, I hope they do it. And I have a feeling they probably will. Well, for the sake of one day, I mean, if the current restrictions lift on July 19th and the race is scheduled to go on July 18th, uh, you would think that hopefully they, they, they can find some sort of solution to make it happen because it would be a real shame if they couldn't. I mean, of course, safety is paramount, but things we're, in a, we're, we're a far different place than we were even four or five months ago. So I certainly hope that... Uh, that they can make it work. All right. The next one I wanted to talk about, and this one, we were a little bit, we didn't talk about it immediately after the race. I know we talked about it on the week, uh, the, the, the weekly show, and this was the whole Mick Schumacher, uh, Nikita Mazepin incident at the end of the, the, the race in Baku there a couple of weeks ago. When uh, Mick went to go and pass his teammate down the start-finish straightaway there, he gets alongside and Nikita makes that really naughty flick to the right and uh, really uh, got Mick Schumacher upset about it. They said after the race that they cleared the air, but the thing that really kind of um, caught me by really caught me off guard was just the, the way that, uh, that Mazepin is kind of really downplaying it now. And basically, you got to read the whole quote here, but uh, it is kind of uh, interesting because basically what uh, he is saying is that uh, he, he feels that uh, Mick cannot expect to have it too easy in Formula One. 
Okay, fair enough. But there is a difference about, okay, having people making your life too easy and letting them pass you easier than you should probably make it for them. Then when you're going over 200 miles an hour down one of the fastest sections of track anywhere we see in the entire year, and then when your teammate comes alongside you, then you decide to make your one entitled uh, defensive maneuver and, and and flick your car to the right. So, you know, fine, you know, you're, you're, you're entitled, you're, you're uh, permitted to defend your position, but just not when your teammate's along beside you or any one of the other 19 cars. I thought was a, a bit of a... A silly comment to say the uh, to say the least. Well, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to say the same thing. I think you're going to agree with me on this one. I'm hoping you will. Yeah, I just I just think at this point people have failed to recognize the genius that is Mazapan's racecraft, and hopefully <laughs> the hopefully the rest of the F1 community gets there, and we can start to put some respect on his start to put some respect on his name in all seriousness though I, I i totally agree it was it was a dangerous maneuver um not least of which is because schumacher had a toe and the minute you step out of that toe it's very 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 hard to react if he's going to yep. cut in front of you and you need to understand that but furthermore he's a teammate and if he has the toe and he has the pace let him go. You're not competing for points. Like this is just a pride issue. Ultimately, I would have let him go. It was a dangerous maneuver. And ultimately, if if Mazapan had moved in front of it, had completed his block, ultimately you're going to end up in one of two places. You're going to end up in the back of Mazapan, which is going to destroy both of your race, or you're going to end in the wall. And maybe you collect him and take him with you. I just I can't wrap my head around this. And I saw as well just the comments that Mazapan made about. I made an apology, but I didn't apologize. It was that apologies. I'm sorry that you're upset, not I'm sorry for a dangerous move because Mazapan's genuinely of the mindset that he wasn't at fault here, that, hey, I thought you were going to go one way, not the other. Sorry you're upset. Move on. And Gunther Steiner, obviously, he indicated that this wasn't something they were going to talk about in public. Um, Mazapan refuses to elaborate, but... I'm over it. I think it's just a reflection of what we see and what we know of Mazapan. And like I said, when we talked about this last time, we're just incredibly lucky that one of these incidents, either as a back marker blocking a front running car or a dangerous maneuver in qualifying or free practice, we're just lucky that he hasn't yet collected another car. And we joke Mazda spin, Mazda spin. Obviously, there's <laughs> a number of spinning issues at the beginning of the season as he was starting to come to grips with the, uh, the tires. But ultimately, we're just lucky that he hasn't collected another car. Um, and created a really dangerous scenario for other people. And again, this is the risk of having somebody that isn't the caliber of other people that could potentially be in Formula One, whether it's Nick DeVries or Hulkenberg or Albon, or you could Magnuson or Ericsson or any of those other drivers. But yeah, I'm a little bit frustrated. Yeah, I, I can tell. Well, you know, one of the other drivers that uh, Sergio Perez was showing a little bit of love to was uh, Award. I mean, he's been uh, doing phenomenal in IndyCar this year, and I guess uh, he's showing a little bit of uh, love to his uh, fellow countrymen. So it's kind of interesting. You know, we, we keep talking about when is the sport going to start uh, building in, uh, in North America? I mean, we, we have three North American drivers right now. Uh, you know, it would be interesting to see if Award could make it in. That would make, a you know, a second Mexican driver. And I mean, the, the one question we get a lot from, from our listeners is, 
when are we going to see an American driver in F1? We talked about it on Monday night, but uh, interesting. Um, anyways, let's start off the conversation here. We're a couple of minutes away from the first break, but this one is, um, like you mentioned in the intro there, Mark, it is just not going away. And this is what uh, we've started to dub Tiregate. And this goes back to those two massive uh, <laughs> punctures and tie. Well, they weren't even punctures. They were explosions totally. that Lance Stroll and uh, Max Verstappen had at the Azerbaijan Grand Prix a couple of uh, weeks ago. And it's interesting because um, if you read the press release that uh, that Pirelli uh, put out there just uh, earlier this week, is it's, it's kind of interestingly, or interestingly worded, right? It's like they kind of point the finger at the teams, but they don't out and out really blame them for running with uh, with lower tire pressures, and and that's basically what uh, they they were saying. So. Um, Aston Martin and uh, Red Bull were the two teams that uh, that were involved. Uh, Pirelli confirmed that they had uh, followed the regulations with the minimum starting tire pressures and the minimum tire warmer uh, temperatures. Those are those uh, for for those of you who knew the sport. Those heated blankets that uh, you see them pulling off uh, the the tires in the garage before they take the tires out for the pit stop. So, you know, they're not quite up to race temperature, but they're about as as hot and as warm as they can get to them. Anyways, um, so Pirelli says that they set their 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 basic starting um, tire pressure based on the expectation well uh the the tire pressure will raise once that the the tires are out on the track they're up to temperature and all those uh, sorts of um you know uh, other variables that they uh, take into consideration so what they were saying is that it appears that on the aston martin and the red bull they didn't actually experience that raise in pressure and were actually running at a lower tire pressure than um pirelli indicated or, or where, where they were anticipating and expecting the tires to run at so it uh, basically it, it's the first domino in a whole bunch of different events that basically caused the whole tire to fail. But the thing that I find uh, amazing is that the tires failed at almost an identical place on the track with the, almost a similar sort of a number of laps on them. So it, it is very, very interesting. So they, uh, they they talk about this thing about the standing waves, which uh, is uh, some sort of phenomena that goes through the tires, goes through the rubber. As uh, you know, the tires are being going to experience all these different forces as the, uh, the the car is going around the track and as the tires age and everything like that. And it says that uh, because of these high speed corners at uh, Baku, that was enough to really, uh, really set off um, the the whole collapse of the tire that uh, basically exploded the, uh, the the left rear tire on both of those cars. It, it's very interesting. I mean, it really gets into an area of tires that uh, I really had no idea really existed. I mean, why should we? I mean, we, we kind of, we, we obviously follow the sport closely, but this is really getting to some nitty gritty and some of the, the real, uh, the real depths of uh, tire construction design and everything that goes into it. it it's, it's really fascinating. It, it's totally fascinating. And it's not the first time we've had this conversation in the V6 hybrid era. Like this was a big scandal in 2016. And I remember the FIA and Pirelli had to change their protocols for testing tire pressure going into, I think it was Austria. And the teams had some funny shenanigans back then. So really, I think it comes down to this, which is Pirelli constructs the tires and they provide advice and recommendations to the teams based on optimal operating conditions. So they say, hey, the, the tire pressure needs to be at this for this tire on this track in these conditions at this temperature. Now the teams, the teams always, always, always prefer to run a lower pressure. And the reason the teams want to run a lower pressure is that even though it creates more rolling resistance in the tire, which could 
conceivably mean the car's a little bit slower. By having less pressure, you create more contact patch. So with less pressure, there's physically more tire touching the road, which in theory means you get more grip. <clears throat> the consequence of this is exactly what you just described, which is if the temperature's too low, it triggers this phenomenon called standing waves, which is basically a ripple in the sidewall of the tires. And that compromises the construction of the tires. And eventually the sidewalls could effectively just tear themselves apart and the tires can come apart, which is, I think, potentially what happened here. So Pirelli does their investigation and they come back and say, there's nothing wrong with the tires, but they're also not specifically pointing the finger at the teams. The teams are saying, hey, we were running the tires to the conditions and the parameters that you advise us to do. But at the same time, the teams aren't sharing up the telemetry. So the teams have real time on demand data showing what the tire temperature is at any given minute on the track. Now, mm -hmm. the way that the teams presumably circumvent this is they will test the tent where they'll test the tire pressure. So the FIA, Formula One, Pirelli, they come around and test the tire temperature. But I think what they've been trying to do historically is use tire blankets to conceal the true tire pressure because as a tire gets hot, the, the tire pressure heats up. So for instance, if you're ever at home and you go and check the pressure of the tire on your car, like it looks a little bit flat. Okay. It's 26 PSI. It's supposed to be at 32. If you then drive a couple of miles to the gas station and check the tire pressure again, it'll have raised. So what we think, or what people think these teams are doing is that the tire pressure is actually lower when it's being tested than it's supposed to be, but that's being concealed because they're effectively heating up the tire. So when they do test it, it looks higher than it actually is because it's already benefited from that increase in heated temperature. And if you go back to 2016, it was highly speculated that teams were being so sneaky that some of them had actual heating elements built into the wheels themselves to heat up the tires for this purpose. So it's, it's totally crazy. Now, all of this said, I, I don't know whether I necessarily sympathize with the teams or I sympathize with Pirelli, but what I will say is that Pirelli's in a really difficult position, right? Ultimately, there's not going to be a lot of glamour associated with F1. The only time people are ever going to mention your tires is when something goes wrong. And I think what you have to consider here is a couple of things. They are asked to develop a tire that can be safely used on the most powerful racing cars on the planet every season when the standards and the formula of the cars change every single season. So never have the cars had more downforce, never have they been faster, but every single year, F1 is totally reinventing the formula of what an F1 car is, whether it's through power, downforce, grip, width. So every single season, Pirelli's got to go and reinvent these tires. They have to do it as well without the ability to test. Formula Pirelli doesn't have a factory with their own Formula One cars. They can't throw some tires on a car and head out to a track during the winter to test. They have to rely on the teams. Now, that said, the teams should be able to provide some data, but ultimately it wouldn't be as much as if they had their own testing cars. And then I think finally, the only other real consideration that I have is when it comes to this conversation, the tires have artificial limits. And by that, I mean the FIA and Formula One have gone to Pirelli and basically said, we need you to create a tire whose grip level and performance is going to destroy, like just fall off a cliff at a certain point. So when we talk about tire degradation and all of those things, we're not pushing the limits of engineering when it comes to tires. Like these, these, the durability and the longevity of the grip in these tires is totally artificial because Formula mm -hmm. One wants a spectacle and they want to have that mandatory 
pit stop every race. Pirelli is being given some really difficult constraints here. Develop a new tire every year based on the formula of the car and also develop a tire that has a compound that's going to fall off after a set amount of laps. Like they're in a really difficult position and I don't want to oversympathize and be considered a Pirelli homer, but I just want to state that for all the criticism <laughs> of Pirelli, their job is a very difficult one. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a couple of thoughts on that and I'm going to address them uh, right after we take our first break. So don't go away. We're going to be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. Mark and Mark here talking about all the latest news in Formula One. And just before the break there, we were talking about what we've been calling uh, affectionately Tiregate. And this is uh, the whole saga that's... Uh, just won't go away. The, the 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 exploding tires we saw for Max Verstappen and Lance Stroll at the Azerbaijan a couple of weeks ago. We were just talking about um, in the previous segment about how Pirelli released their report earlier this week. And it is interesting. I mean, you made a, a couple of great points. I mean, specifically, Pirelli don't have a test facility or cars that they uh, their own cars that they can go and uh, go and test these new compounds with. And that's typically why we see a tire testing day at the end of the year, which they've done for the past uh, several years. And uh, some of the drivers and teams will uh, take part. And now one of the things that have uh, come out uh, subsequently to the report is that the FIA have actually sent out a, a technical uh, directive saying that the teams uh, have to be responsible to make sure that they're running the the, the tire pressures that are above those that are stipulated uh, by Pirelli in advance of, of the race. So basically, the FIA has said uh, you have to be at these minimum tire pressures and so that any team that are found to be running tires that are found after the race to be under the pressures uh, that were um, uh, dictated and settled by Pirelli are actually going to be uh, reported to the stewards because... As we've seen, it's not like a competitive advantage thing. Maybe it is, but that's not the main concern here. It's a safety issue. And we yeah. talked about it in the uh, the, the post-race show we did on that Sunday night that both Max and Lance were extremely fortunate that where they had their tire uh, you know, incidents was on the fastest part of the track and neither of them ended up getting airborne or rolling over or any other number of uh, really, really uh, scary things. So... It is, um, yeah, I, I think that they have to do it. But you know what's also you know interesting, right, is um, 
this whole tire thing was completely unexpected. But starting this weekend, we're going to have uh, two new uh, in- enforcements come to play. One is the tire thing, and then the other thing is this crackdown the, on the flexi wings that's been out there for you know several couple of well se- more than several weeks now. So the, these are both going to come into effect uh, the, the, this week. But well, what do you think? I, I think it's a great idea that they've uh, laid down this technical directive. And yeah, if you're not running um, at those minimum uh, cold tire temperatures, you should be brought to the uh, the, the attention of the stewards basically like i say safety issue and that's got to be paramount to number one yeah i thought we'd solve this back in 2016 clearly we hadn't hopefully there's some better clarification and protocols established around when and where uh tire temperatures are tested like it, it almost needs to be on the formation lap or immediately before they hit the, the formation lap but then it, that doesn't work because you've just taken the the wheels out of the tire blankets or maybe it's ultimately that pirelli holds on to the wheels and tires they test them all and then they so they'll figure it out they've got to figure it out because to your point this is ultimately a a health and safety issue the other risk and i'd seen a few folks on reddit comment that ultimately if pirelli's in a really difficult position here you know what they're going to do right is they're going to upset teams because they're just going to start bringing harder compound tires to races when in the past maybe they would have brought a softer compound tire because they want to be conservative because they want to be safe and the other thing that they're going to start doing is just starting recommending higher pressures so hey Mm -hmm. you've got to look out for pirelli here we need to look out for the safety of the sport if you guys are going to tamper with tire pressure to get more grip despite the addition of additional rolling resistance we're just going to bring harder compounds and we're going to recommend higher pressure. So even if you try to circumvent it, it's still in a safe range. So I, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll be very curious to see how this plays. The other piece, and kudos to a number of our listeners that sent us this story, but there was a story earlier this week that indicated that when Sergio came over to Red Bull from Aston Martin, one of the stories that he shared with them was Aston Martin's strategy around tire pressures and how they manage oh. tire pressures. And okay. if you if you remember last year in the rain, the Aston Martin team in Turkey did exceptionally well, qualifying on pole and in third place. And of course, the race result ended up in a second and a ninth because, of course, Lance had that unfortunate front wing damage. But ultimately, yep. the story basically inferred that the reason they were so successful, so, so successful in qualifying in, at that event was simply because they were manipulating the tire pressures. And not surprisingly, then, if Sergio brought that feedback and experience from Aston Martin over to Red Bull and Red Bull maybe implemented that feedback. Look at the two teams. And again, this is purely speculative. Like there's there's no actual hardcore reporting here, but you look at mm-hmm. the outcome of the race. It was an Aston Martin and it was a Red Bull. So maybe it is these two teams, but yeah, the, it's just, I go back to the announcement. It, it was a non-announcement announcement. We investigated, the tires were fine. And based on what we can see, the teams weren't at fault. End of story. Yeah. Yeah, I know, right? I've got a couple of quotes that I want to read out to you in a moment. But uh, one thing that, uh, you know, if you don't really notice it so much in your in your road car unless your tires really suffer a, a real drop in tire pressure. But the one thing that that I notice and, you know, I, I'm an avid cyclist. I'm out all the time. And the tires on my road bike, I think they're rated anywhere from I can't remember if it's 100 to 120 PSI or 110 to 120 so what I tend to do is if um, it's a, a wet weather, wetter weather, or the, the roads are a bit uh, wet and it might not be raining, I'll, I'll set the tire pressure on the lower end, uh, closer to 100 PSI or 110 or whatever it is. 
or if the roads are, are uh, drier, I'll uh, put the pressure closer to 120. And you notice a difference. I, I mean, you can see it on the tire. You can see that when you're on the bike, you can see that there is a bigger contact patch. And this is on a 700 by 23 millimeter tire. So, I mean, it's not a Formula One tire by a long uh, stretch, but you can see that the tire does make more contact, even on a skinny uh, a bike tire like that. But also when it is on the harder, the, the higher um, tire pressure, you notice a difference too. So totally. you do know. Yeah, it, it, it is noticeable. And of course, if you're driving around in your road car, 10 PSI, you're not going to have a good day anyway totally. or and i don't know if anyone <laughs> here watches uh top gear but back in i think yeah. 2007 when they went to the north pole so i'm inferring everyone knows who top gear is or the, the cast but they took a toyota pickup truck a helix i think to the north pole uh yep. from one of the northern canadian territories and one of the ways that they would get through heavy 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 snow or if they get stuck they would simply deflate the tires so the tires would be flat but you get this huge contact patch so you had that mm -hmm. much more grip to pull you out of the snow and it's it's effectively the and oversimplifying it for sure that's really kind of the situation that we've experienced here and Pirelli's ultimately just saying like hey we give you an operating range for tire pressure and if you go below it you do it at your own risk but ultimately it looks like Pirelli and the FIA and Formula One are going to have to start enforcing this for the safety of the cars and the drivers Okay, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Okay, two quotes go. from our championship uh, protagonist, Lewis Hamilton quote as you know, every weekend, whenever there's a failure, they always put the pressures up, so that tells you something. More often than not, it's that the tires are not being run at the pressures that are being asked. We didn't have a problem with our tires. I think that they've done a great job with the tires this year. They're more robust than before, and I think in this particular instance, I don't think Pirelli are at fault. At the end of the day, safety is always the priority. And for me, my team, uh, there have been clear rules and guidelines as to where we have to operate. End quote. Okay, Lewis Hamilton. Now, Max Verstappen, on the, uh, the other hand, so Max says, quote, of course, they explained that they don't have the measurement tools during the race, but we gave them our tire pressures and they were within the limits they set. If those limits are not correct, then there's nothing we can do about it. We just follow what is possible within the rules. If that means we have to go up on the pressures, we will. Everyone will go up on the pressures. But they didn't say that the, they didn't have the correct measurements, but we gave it to them after the race and it was shown that we didn't do anything wrong there and also asked Martin to do anything wrong, so they cannot put the blame on us. I think they need to look at themselves. And we are here, happy to help, of course, with everything. They already went up on pressure from Friday in Baku to Saturday, so that means something. Maybe it wasn't enough. We'll go up on pressures here for sure, and hopefully that's enough, end quote. So, interesting, uh, to, you know. <clears throat> I love that he's speaking every... on behalf of Aston Martin. I know, right? Oh, <laughs> that, that's that, so that's part of it. But it, it, it's funny, you know, it seems that... Um, not only are they adversaries in the car, but they seem to be adversaries also out of the car whenever one of them makes a quote and it's sort of read back to them or relayed to, to them through the media. It always seems to be that the other one will take the uh, you know the, the counter position to it. I thought that uh, I thought it was interesting the way that Lewis put it that they hadn't seen any um, or they hadn't any issues. They have clear uh, procedures uh, during the team, whereas Max was kind of like, well, you know, we just took we just did with what um, uh, not Mercedes, uh, sorry, what uh, Pirelli gave us, and it wasn't good enough. Same with uh, Aston Martin, we gave everything back to them, and hopefully, you know, it's it's okay. It seems very much uh, that that 
the vibe I get from Lewis is okay. We get the data from uh, from Pirelli, but then we've got our own thing that we do, and uh, it seems just sort of reading between the lines there that Mercedes has their own procedures about it. Whereas Max, kind of um, the way that he kind of explained it is okay. We just get the stuff from uh, Pirelli and we just do whatever they say, and then that that's it. I can't believe it would be as simple and cut and dry as that. That uh, that the Mercedes. They have their own sort of set protocols around protocols around tire pressures, and Red Bull basically washed their hand. It's like Pirelli told us to do this, so we're going to do this. I can't believe it's that simple, Mark. Yeah, I totally agree. Just a couple of points too. Uh, a lot of our listeners had kind of reached out and said, "Well, why don't we just change the tire provider if this is such a problem?" Tires have always been an issue. There's never been a period in F1 history where everyone is content with the tires. The reality too is, and, and we talked about this, I just don't think there's another manufacturer lining up to take on this, this contract. I think we're lucky we have Pirelli. They're clearly invested. I wish they had more ability to do off-season testing, but I don't think yep. there's anyone lining up. The other consideration too is originally when they signed this deal in 2018, it was through 2023, it was extended a year, I think partly because of COVID, but also because of the regulation delays. So they're going to be around for a couple more years, but I just don't see anyone else coming in. And if some else did come in like you got to think about it Pirelli's not going to hand them the IP on the tires they've been developing like they start from no scratch yep. you have to build a new factory and hire an R&D team so there's a sunk cost that would probably run in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and then what's our ROI on this like nobody else is coming in the other thing too is while we've had periods in the past where there have been multiple tire suppliers, we will never see that again. I promise you, we will never see that again. If the 2005 USGP taught us anything, there's too much risk to the integrity of the sport. The other challenge too is I would hate to see a situation where you had team A and team B and they're going right down to the final and ultimately one of the teams has a bad tire or they made a bad tire. She's like, I'd hate to see a championship decided because one team chose one tire over another. And you could make that conversation about engines and power units and gearboxes, but I just don't want tires to be a part of that equation. Like tires to me are this one yes. underlying principle of parity. Everyone has the same tires. They're provided by the same manufacturer with the same specification. It provides a degree of parity. And we keep talking like, F1 is all about parodies. That's what the 22 regs are about. That's what the 2016 power unit changes are about. If you kind of throw in this new spice of a second tire provider, that whole concept of parity goes out the window. Like I'm, I'm not for that at at all. And just one more comment too. I'm sorry, I'm really worked up on the subject tonight is Max may say <laughs> that they and Aston Martin gave Pirelli data. We don't know what data they gave them. Was it the data before the race or was it data during the race? Because I'm pretty convinced neither Aston Martin nor Red Bull fed them the data of the tire temperature or tire pressure during the mm -hmm. race. That's the data they need. So then again, the other question is, well, maybe the FIA and Liberty should just and and Pirelli should have real-time access to the tire pressure of all the tires during a race. The teams have that data. Maybe they just need to feed it. So we'll see. Yeah, that's a great point because um, they, they probably don't because, uh, you know, back during the race there after Max had his uh, his accident, right? They were immediately on the radio to the race director from the from the, from the the Red Bull pit wall saying that, hey, we had no indication that this was going to happen. All our data was, totally. uh, was indicating that these tires were fine. You know, the tire temperatures were fine. And this just uh, happened and caught us uh, completely uh, unawares. Anyways, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in, in, after the break. So just hang on and we'll be back in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back.
All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Hey, Mark, we've been talking for the past uh, 15 minutes or so about uh, Tiregate. So guess what we're going to do for another, well, maybe Protest! not another 15 minutes. Oh, no. I'm getting ahead of myself. But, you're getting ahead of yourself. We will talk about Valtteri Bottas. Oh, come moment, on. But uh, this is also a bit of a, a, bit of a teaser because we're going to talk about this team uh, a little bit later on because they were in the news for all the right reasons uh, this week. But anyways, Alpine Executive Director uh, Marcin Budkowski says it would be quite worrying, those are his words, if teams are playing with uh, tricks, as he calls it, with tire pressures uh, after uh, you know, this whole saga with the tires, the technical directives and everything like that. Anyways, uh, Budkowski had to say, quote, certainly it was important to get to the bottom of it because it is a safety critical matter. The reaction of increasing the, the rear pressures and the conclusion seemed to indicate it's the fa- failure of the tire. The reaction of the FIA is actually not a significant change in the operating procedures. It's a lot more clarity and a lot more tightening of the operational procedures. Whether that suggests that some people were taking some freedoms with the operational procedures, that's a step I won't make because I don't know. But if that's the case, it's quite worrying because that's a safety-critical matter. In general, there are tighter procedures and checks that have been imposed. It's not fundamentally different from what was in place. So obviously, we welcome the fact that it's going to be checked thoroughly because that's something you don't want to play with, end quote. Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, it goes back to what we were saying just now is the fact that uh, it is a safety issue. And that's, uh, you know, that's always has to be the number one concern is the health and safety of all, all the drivers. But, you know, it, it's funny, like, you mentioned it a couple of times there. And uh, just this this awful, well, maybe not awful, but this really tough uh, paradox that they have to make these tires that are uh, that, that are reliable, do the job, have the grip, but are supposed to degrade and be fundamentally useless after 20 laps, 30 laps, 40 laps laps, whatever it is, based on the compound that they have. I mean, we can go throw a set of uh, tires on our car and drive for 25, 50,000 miles or whatever it is, and you're not going to notice a big difference, uh, you know, at, at least initially. I mean, if you're down to the wear bars or your tires are completely uh, <laughs> completely bald or they've been patched a million times because you've uh, you know had a bunch of uh, punctures and flat tires, that's a, a bit of a different story. But uh, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it, it would seem this is a real kind of like niche, really kind of like going down the rabbit hole in this subject but at the same time it is really really interesting and i just can't get over the fact that if you go and look through the f1 news this week it's basically tires 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 and uh, i guess it kind of goes back to the question we had in the mailbag it was either on monday or last week just uh, the the one listener that was asking well how often are they trying to push the rules and uh, i i think your, your answer was they're trying to push and bend the rules all the time and you know based on what we saw in uh, in azerbaijan a couple of weeks ago this might be an area that even though the teams uh, have, have have denied it but like you said uh, there is that anecdote from sergio perez and what they were doing at racing point last year and uh, and before is perhaps uh, that some of them have been uh, playing around with some of the tire pressures so it just uh, kind of comes back to that conversation we had a couple of days ago. Doesn't matter what it is, flexi wings, suspensions, engines, uh, tires. If they think that they can get away with uh, some finding some sort of advantage somewhere, they're going to try it. In this case, if it that was the case, it's a, obviously was a, a spectacular failure in more ways than one because you know they might have been caught uh, maybe not red-handed and maybe not uh, as obvious as uh, you know Ferrari were with the engine contraventions allegedly a couple of years ago, but still it uh, it's a, that that old adage right where there's smoke there's there there's usually fire. Yeah, 
I've got nothing to add. I think I think nothing to add. I think that. I've said enough uh, enough about tires. Other than the fact that obviously we'll expect to see a little bit more enforcement. I think one of the big ones is they're going to be a little bit more strict around pre race uh, tire pressure check protocols. They're going to check tire pressures, I believe, post race or after the cars have been run or after the tires have been taken off the cars. Uh, and then I think they're also going to use heat guns to uh, measure the temperature of the tires uh, to make sure that the uh, warming blankets aren't being used excessively. And I don't know how you determine that because I don't think there's anything in the sporting regulations about how long a tire blanket can or can't be on a tire, but I'm sure they'll figure it out. But it looks like they're going to take some steps to uh, ensure the structural integrity of these tires to uh, ensure safety during a race. Well, I guess uh, that's uh, there, there's a good market in uh, use temperature guns now, now that COVID seems to be winding down, you know, those uh, temperature thermometers that you can do and zap people in the face with, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of secondhand ones that, uh, you know, you could uh, buy to uh, check out the temperatures of some oh, Formula totally. One tires. So yeah, there you go. Anyways, uh, we, we talked about it. Uh, you hinted at it already. I know you're dying to talk about uh, Valtteri Bottas, which, you know, we, we shouldn't joke about Valtteri. I mean, he's done an absolute outstanding job at, uh, at Mercedes over the past uh, several years. Uh, he said that uh, he's not letting his uh, future with uh, Mercedes uh, become a distraction. And, uh, well, unfortunately, it has become a distraction for everybody else. I mean, if he's able to block it out and focus and get down and do what he needs to do in the car, at the track, you know, you know, props to him, respect to him. Uh, but, I mean, th- there have been so many discussions that we've had about uh, some of these drivers basically since uh, before the season started. And it's just uh, not going to go uh, away anytime soon. We were talking about George Russell the, uh, the other night, just how uh, he said he wanted to have some certainty about uh, his uh, future in in Formula One going into uh, 2022 and all that. And, uh, you know, again, just uh, when it comes to Mercedes, I think they're the only person that has any leverage, that has any bargaining position and any any pedestal to stand on is Lewis Hamilton. And and anybody else is just, you're going to get what you're going to get. It doesn't matter if you're Valtteri Bottas. It doesn't matter if you're uh, George Russell. Uh, I mean, if you're Lewis Hamilton, yeah, there's obviously going to be some back and forth. Or, I mean, if, you you know, some sort of shocker, if it was, say, you know, they were trying to do a deal with Max Verstappen, you know, you you could see that. Like, your your, your top-tier couple of drivers, obviously, they're going to have a pretty strong bargaining uh, position. But, you know, unfortunately for for, for uh, Valtteri and for for, uh, George, I was going to say Max, but that uh, that obviously isn't the case. They're just going to have to, to to wait it out. They'll be ready to talk to these guys when they're ready. I have nothing to add because I'm so tired of the Valtteri Bottas discussion. I, and I feel like we put this on So I've got to be careful because I say I won't talk about it and then I'll talk about it for 20 minutes. But what I yep. do want to talk about is, and I'm going to go a little bit off, off script here, but only because it's pseudo- <gasps> No, you can't do that. You, that's not about okay, contract. You, though. you said I'm not allowed to talk about Trump or Justin Trudeau, and I mostly don't. But I'm allowed to talk. About- <laughs> I'm a- okay. Go on. Go on, Go off script. Okay. So my point is the Valtteri Bottas situation. I think I think it'll be exciting to talk about that more when we know more. But what I did want to add, only because I was looking at a picture of Valtteri Bottas a couple minutes ago, is how great the black Mercedes official t-shirt merch are this year. There's a photo of Bottas and he's wearing that shirt that has that, that collar, that the neck collar, and it's ringed with a ring of white and a ring of red. And then it says Tommy on it looks fantastic, totally unrelated, but I think it looks really good. And I would add as well that one of the most common questions that we seem to get is about the price of F1 merch. And always, and we talked about this last week. Why is it so expensive? 
it could be expensive because they sell it. Now, somebody else had made a great point, and I totally, totally apologize um, for not remembering who it was, but somebody had made a comment that maybe to help break through in the US, the US or uh, Formula One could pair up with Fanatics, the Fanatics website that seems to do merch for yep. all of the major sports leagues, like pump the US full of cheap or more accessible F1 merch just to get it out there because none of it's out there anyway. So it's like kind of like an untapped market. And I thought that was actually a really wise idea. But anyways, back to, uh, back to the script. Sorry about that. Well, I, I'm going to stay off script for a moment because I, I'm curious to how much that T-shirt uh, would uh, retail for. Do you have? Do you have? Hit me with a number. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, let me look it up right now. But what would your guess be? Uh, I'm going to say, uh, do you want dollars or euros or pounds? I, I'm going to go with. Uh, I'm going to say seventy-five dollars. You know that, that's what I'm going with. We're so bad on this show. I realized this the other day. Like we interchangeably use Europe, like U.S. dollars, Canadian dollars, euros. Like, oh, this team costs a billion. A billion what, Hamilton? Like, what does it actually cost? Like, I don't know, a billion well, units? Well, the, the majority of our, our listeners are in the United States. So the, let's just say that the default currency, unless uh, you know uh, we preface it with Canadian dollars or Australian dollars or something like that, is US dollars. That that that's uh, you know that should just be a given. Yeah, I think that's fair, especially since Liberty is technically a US company. So they typically yeah. report revenue and earnings and things like that. So it is... $60 US, which would be 80 Canadian. Yeah, that seems about right. That 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 isn't actually quite as horrible as I was expecting. I mean, it, it's still, you know, frightfully expensive for just a t-shirt, yeah. but uh, in in Formula 1 terms, that that that's actually um almost not that bad. It's not Almost. It's not terrible, right? <laughs> and I, like I've said before, because I have some experience buying some uh, Mercedes merch, the quality is super, super good. But again, we're not being paid by Mercedes, so we should probably move on to the next topic. The next topic, and he's going to be so upset if he actually listens to this uh, show, is going to be Esteban Ocon, who signed a new uh, deal with Alpine to stay with them until 2024. If he listens to it, he's like, guys, I got in like wedged in after tires, after Mazepin, after you guys surfed the web to find out a t-shirt price. Yeah. Quality like, research. But anyways... Quality research, quality podcast here. Anyways, uh, yeah, I think this is uh, great news, uh, Esteban. I think that he really deserves this uh, contract. And the term of three years is something not to turn your nose up at because uh, Formula One, as we've talked about before, tend not to hand out super uber long-term uh, contracts. So I think the fact that they've committed to him for the next uh, three uh, seasons is significant. And I think uh, for, for Esteban, I think this is wonderful because it gives him security. And it's a, a, I think it's a bit of a, a reward or a bit of payback for some of the bumps that he went through early in his career, specifically when he sat out that one season when he was reserve driver to Mercedes, didn't get the opportunity to get back into a, a race seat until 2020. And I think that uh, you're if you're Esteban Alcon, I think you got to be really happy you got to be excited about the future and now you can just uh, get down to uh, you know racing and then also uh, focusing on helping this team to try develop and build and improve this car i completely agree i'm very 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 happy for esteban Ocon, and i think we said that on our twitter feed and i think you you make a really great point as well that we're used to with north american sports to seeing longer guaranteed contracts the nba you'll see those yep. four or five year deals major league baseball you see these crazy 10-year deals you see these super long terms in the nhl with the exception of the nfl like all of the north american sports contracts are guaranteed and they're these long terms but in f1 it's normal to see a one or two year deal i think what excites me most about this one though is if alpine is committing to Ocon for three years 
to me, that infers that maybe their commitment to the sport is greater than maybe they've let on. Because in the back of my head, I've always been concerned about Renault and Alpine's commitment to Formula One, and I'd hate to lose them. They're spending all this money to produce a power unit, but they're not selling it to any other teams. They don't have any customer teams. Like This is an expensive operations. They scored a couple of podiums last year, but they've really struggled since re-entering the sport after taking over Lotus back in 2015. Like I, I, I feel good, one, for Ocon, but two, because I feel good that this speaks to the commitment potentially that Alpine has to the sport. And just to recap as well, and I think we've done this a couple of times, this is a kid came into Formula One in the back half of 2016 racing for Manor. You have to look up Manor because you probably won't have heard of them. Uh, had a phenomenal 2017. Didn't score any podiums with uh, Force India, but had a phenomenal 2017. Scored points in all but two races. Uh, 2018 was a little bit more choppy, but that was also the year that Force India went through administration and weren't developing the car. Um, and then, of course, he sat out 2019 and he came back 2020 strong. Had some, uh, had some retirement reliability issues, but this year he has four points finishes and six races. Hasn't been close to a podium, but I think that's more a reflection of the car than it is him. Um, yeah. And I think it's also good in a way that it looks like the relationship between he and Fernando Alonso is good. And I wasn't sure it was going to be, but I feel like Fernando now being in his forties recognizes that maybe my value here isn't the expectation that I'm going to score a podium or win races or win a championship, but maybe I'm just here to deliver value to the team and provide valuable feedback and help them help them, uh, develop the car through that that feedback. And I think the other thing that's really important here too is that Alpine effectively functions as the French national team being Renault mm -hmm. owned and to have a French driver for marketing purposes is just, it's really good for that team. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was very interesting. I don't know if we really talked about it at the time when they announced the rebrand over the winter from Renault to Alpine, but they were kind of resurrecting this historic brand, right? This historic name. And it was one of those kind of like, I don't want to say it was like a throwaway quote, but I think it was one of those quotes that it kind of fell between the cracks a little bit, but at the same time, it kind of burrowed its way into the back of my mind and it's kind of stuck there for you know quite some time. And I can't remember who made it, if it might have been a beatable at the time prior to his uh, sudden de departure from the team in, in the offseason. But it was something to the effect of that by rebranding from Renault to Alpine was basically going to be a, a much more longer term commitment in Formula One. And I thought to myself, I, I don't remember the exact uh, way it was um, it, it was spoken, but I thought at the time that it was it, it was fascinating because I thought, why would just a simple rebrand change the commitment to the sports? And it kind of made me wonder what was going on behind the scenes at the board level, where all the decisions get made, and why they made uh, you know they, they decided to, to 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 actually do this. But you know, if the, if that's the case, I think it's great because I'll admit I I think that my I'm lukewarm on the Renault Alpine revival, if you want to call it that, ever since uh, 2014, 2015. I mean, they've really underwhelmed and they've they've disappointed. I think that the you know, the, the power unit obviously isn't quite as uh, beefy as, uh, say, some of the other ones that are out there, but I think it's slightly improved. But I mean, I, I would have expected that the first year or two after taking over that Lotus project, of course, the year one was just going to be a rebadged Lotus with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Renault livery on it. And I would have thought that it, it would have taken them a couple of years. And they did improve, but it wasn't like a real sharp 
climb in results and performance and everything like that. It was much more gradual and then it kind of flattened out. And then if anything, it regressed a little bit. And that's why it was uh, so disappointing. But, you know, they really do have, I, I think that uh, Ocon is uh, maybe a bit of an underrated driver. I mean, we definitely saw some flashes of how good he can be when he was at Racing Point. Of course, there is that incident that he had with Max Verstappen in Brazil a couple of years ago when he was trying to unlap himself, which is probably maybe not his, uh, you know, most, uh, you know, his best shining moment in, in, in Formula One. But I mean, he's still young, he's fast, and I think that he's got a lot of room uh, to, to grow still. And it, it is interesting, too, if you look at the driver standings right now uh, fernando and esteban are 11th and 12th in the driver's championship at the moment 13 and 12 points uh you know respectively but i think that um it is interesting that dynamic that you pointed out between himself and Fernando is it's very different than some of the relationships that Fernando's had with uh, some of his uh, teammates in the past. And I'll let you respond to that in a moment after we take a break here. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. We're talking now about Alpine. We're talking about Esteban Alca and his brand new three-year deal. Uh, before the break, I was just uh, talking, Mark, about how the relationship that you uh, pointed out uh, a little bit earlier between Fernando and Alonso and Esteban Alca seems to be uh, pretty good. And uh, to me, you know, immediately my reaction when you said that uh, to me, or when you said that just now, was I was thinking that this is certainly not the kind of uh, relationship that that Fernando has been or had with his teammates in the past. They either just didn't exist or they were openly hostile. So to hear that there there, there is this sort of connectivity, there is this uh, a bit of teamwork going on, the fact that uh, that he seems to be, uh, you know, I don't know how engaged, but certainly certainly seems to be uh, in there to help uh, develop the car, and uh, you know is uh, sharing data and things with uh, with, with Esteban seems very very unFernando like, and I, I think that uh, you really made a very very good point. I there. think it's a good fit for Fernando. I, I don't think he left F one on his terms uh, after that no, whole McLaren no. situation, but I think the reality is, given how toxic that situation was, I think a lot of teams were very nervous about potentially signing Fernando. One because of his age, he was an older driver, but two, because yep. this guy has a rap, right? And that rap is, or rep is that he can be very vocal. He can be a little bit, a little bit, a lot abrasive. Uh, there's a lot of friction with teammates, especially the other driver. And you make a great point too. Like if you flash back to 2007, that one bizarre year that he had with McLaren, like it was absolute fireworks fireworks Mm -hmm. between him and Hamilton and the scandals and the speculation of what happened that season and how Hamilton's almost like guaranteed championship slipped away at the last second. Like there's, there's definitely been a history here. So it's good to see that he's functioning more as a team first driver. And I think this is good for him because potentially he gets to go out on his own terms and he gets to go out on a team that he's had immense success with. And for some of our newer listeners, uh, Fernando Alonso drove with the Renault team for most of the early part of his career. I think he was with them from 2003 until 2006. He won the championship in both 2005 and 2006. In a shock move, he left Renault and went to Merce- or went to uh, McLaren for 2007. Then he bounced right back to Renault for a couple of years and there were some additional scandals. But this is the team where he's experienced his most success. And if he can wrap up his career there, then then fantastic. And if he can help develop the car and provide feedback and help develop Acon in some meaningful way, that's great too. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Michelle Gonzalez in the Michelle light chat, uh, she made... Yeah, she made a really good point about Esteban saying that, uh, uh, quote, I think Alcon is another one like Lewis. He didn't come from money and really had to struggle to afford carding and the under series. Great points. Yeah, great point. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, sticking with Alpine now, they, uh, they've they admitted that they're still looking for answers to why their car is really good in qualifying, but uh, really not up to scratch when it comes to the races uh, itself. And that that must be so frustrating if you're a driver knowing that uh, you know and they've had some pretty good uh, some pretty decent qualifying sessions uh, this year i mean uh, a- absolutely but it must be so fresh as frustrating for everybody involved in that team that there's a big disconnect somewhere in the performance in this car from from saturday to sunday and it it, it just I, I don't know i mean if if you're esteban or fernando you you just must be ready to bang your head up against the wall knowing that you could you can qualify well but you're just not going to have the, the the car underneath you on Sunday and that is just a, it, you know I, I find this really kind of weird you know especially that this isn't a brand new car I mean this is basically the same car that they've had for the past two and a half years with some slight modifications and and different bits that have been added to them just to, for the slight modifications that we've seen since uh, 2019 but still I, I find this yeah, I just find it such a bizarre statement from uh, from CEO uh, Marcel Budkowski. That, and, and this is what he has to say, quote, we have to work hard to understand our race pace deficit, and it's something we're actively investigating. It is clear that the car is uh, capable of good performances and qualifying, but on some circuits, we just can't seem to replicate that good pace in race conditions, and that's something we need to get on top of to score bigger points in the championship. We hope that our findings so far will help us achieving a good result in France on a full-time circuit more typical than what we see in Formula One, end quote. So <laughs> it just it, it seems like themselves are completely at a loss, but I guess also at the same time, you know, Mercedes have. Uh, you know, we, we talked about it uh, that uh, that that the the fact that they don't have the uh, the DAS on the car this uh, this year is probably affecting the, the 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 performance on the car, but also that they've come out and said that you know they're not one hundred percent sure that why this car isn't as uh, isn't as good as it has been over the past couple of years. So, Alpine, not the only ones out there struggling. I think the bizarre thing is exactly what you stated, which is they have great pace in qualifying, and then that pace just seems to fade away during the course of the race. I don't know if you remember, but back in April, Marcin Bukowski, who I think functions as the executive director of the Alpine racing team, he made a comment that kind of reflected what I think a lot of people suspected, which is Alpine didn't have a great winter in terms of car development. And a big chunk of that was traced back to the fact that they openly admitted that they had some major issues with their wind tunnel during the off season. And they had a lot of downtime with the wind tunnel, which meant they weren't able to rapidly develop the arrow as quickly as they want to, because if the wind tunnels down, you can't put that model in that wind tunnel to determine whether your arrow upgrades are working and whether they need tweaking. Of course, you can rely pretty heavily on uh, computational fluid dynamics for some of it, but I think teams still fundamentally rely on the wind tunnel. So they they openly admitted back in April that they were kind of on the back foot when the season began. They had some pretty good upgrades by the time we got to the first race of the season. But what is really bizarre right now is just their qualifying pace, to your point, relative to the performance that they have in the course of the race. The fact that they can sustain a really strong pace for four or five or six laps during qualifying, but 
but can't enable that to translate into the race? And like, is it that they're running a really crazy engine mode in qualifying that's really stressing the capabilities of the engine, which isn't sustainable during the course of a 40 or 50 lap? Um, is it that they're doing something funky with the tire pressures? I, I don't know. And I can't put my finger on it. And I spent a little bit of time trying to talk to some folks around the sport to get a sense. And it seems to be a mystery for, for everyone ultimately. Yeah, it's it's very very bizarre. Hey, Mark, uh, what, what do you want to do now? Shall we uh, just? Uh, do you have any uh, tweets or emails or anything? I've got an email, yeah, let's start. but uh, I'm we're, we're sure go we've got questions. A... But yeah, let's jump to an email. Okay, we got uh, one email here. We'll talk about this one, and then we'll go into the break, and then uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, the French Grand Prix. Anyways, this one is interesting. This is uh, from uh, Aaron Lewis, and he says, uh, "Hey guys, uh, first off, love the pod. I think you guys do a fantastic job." Uh, and you guys make F1 and the history of F1 and the technical side really easy to understand. And Aaron, he's a Gen DTS. Anyways, he goes on to say, as uh, someone living in the United States, I feel the USA is missing out on this worldwide sport. I know Haas is an American team, but in a weird way, it doesn't feel that way. And that could just be me. No, Aaron, it is not you. I totally agree with that statement. Uh, he goes on to say, but my other question is, do you think uh, with the addition of another U.S. Grand Prix in 2022, will that make for more interest with uh, for another U.S. F1 team or even uh, a U.S. power unit? I have always thought that Ford would make a great PU for F1. I know cost would be the biggest issue, but I think uh, Ford with their EcoBoost engines would be perfect. Uh, would be a perfect starting point for the world of F1 and their turbo hybrid engines. Uh, Ford, I feel, have done an amazing job of getting uh, power out of a turbo V6 engine instead of V8. The Ford Raptor, for example. I know Ford already has a history with F1 before with uh, Cosworth and Jaguar. Uh, but do you think that uh, Ford would make a great fit for an engine provider for F1? And do you think that you can see a team in F1 that would be a US-based team? Sorry. Sorry about the long question, but thank you for reading it and keep up the great work, guys. Well, awesome. Thanks. That's a, a great question, uh, Aaron. And um, yeah, Ford, I think if it would come to uh, an engine manufacturer, uh, a, a, an American one at that point, uh, would have to be uh, Ford. Obviously, with the historical tie-in to Formula One, I just couldn't see, say, Chevrolet or somebody else like that uh, getting involved, at least not at this point. And I think that there still are a lot of questions. You know, obviously, cost is a huge one. I mean, it is um, massively, massively expensive. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I mean, that's why Honda, I think, uh, well, I mean, they didn't come in originally. And they were only a year or two behind everyone else when they came back in 2015. But they started their development so much later than than Ferrari, then Renault, then, uh, then uh, Mercedes. And they were really, really uh, far behind on it. And I guess to, the, the, the big question comes down to, you know, is there will at the highest levels of Ford to want to get back into Formula One? I mean, I think that uh, th there would be a fit there, but I think ultimately that's uh, that uh, that's where it comes down to. And I think just also for the demand uh, or the interest to have another uh, American-based team, and I totally get why Aaron is saying that Haas, even though it's an American team, it doesn't feel like an American team, even though you know they got the the American flag on the side of the car and all that. And where are they based? It's somewhere it was it Greensboro, yeah, North, North Carolina, Carolina, North yeah. Carolina. Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly don't feel like an American team. And um, so that that is just not, you know, Aaron just, you know, feeling that on his own. I, I completely uh, agree with that comment. But I think ultimately, if um, we were to see another American team in Formula One, I think it would have to do 
it would have to make sense for somebody to to uh, to, to make that step. I think that the, the the popularity and the support, I think people that absolutely have to be rabid to do it. And then somebody with a lot of money sitting somewhere would have to be thinking, hey, this is something that we have to get in on. We we need to do this. You know, the, the American sporting public is crying out for this other team. And certainly having uh, two races at, uh, at Austin and Miami next year, that's certainly going to raise the profile. And certainly, I mean, there is room for massive growth in the United States. It's just where do they get to and how excited uh, do people get about? It? And I think that that ultimately will drive a lot of these uh, these these other things, seeing other manufacturers coming in, other teams, drivers, whatever, sponsorship. I think all those things will will ultimately sort of flow from where the popularity goes. And we're seeing it ourselves that, uh, as I said, that the, the, the audience for this show, even though we've never tried to target any audience anywhere in the, the, the world, organically, the, 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 the listenership, the viewership on this uh, show is 60%, almost 60% based in the United States, which you know says something right there. Yes, I love Texas and California and every other state that our American <laughs> listeners are based in. Andre in uh, in Southern Florida, thank you for listening uh, and asking questions while we're doing the show. Just one point on that Ford piece. Um, I think the challenge would be this. If Ford wanted to get into open wheel racing, why isn't it competing in Indy today? Why is it allowing Chevy to be the yeah. only American power unit producer? And they have been in, Great in point. Formula One in modern history, right? So I don't think a lot of our kind of newer listeners would know this, but Ford had a factory team in 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004. They branded it using the Jaguar branding, but it was a, a factory Ford team, although at least early on they were using Cosworth engines. So Ford put the full might of the organization behind a Formula One team. And really, you could write books about how poorly managed that was. Uh, if you're interested, mm -hmm. the Jaguar team eventually became Red Bull. So Red Bull's roots are actually in that Ford team, but Ford's done it before. And I think they hemorrhaged money. Uh, they weren't enjoying it. I don't think it was providing any significant value to the brand. But then again, maybe that's simply because they were fronting the Jaguar brand, which has limited appeal. And it has limited appeal now, even though they're developing a really exceptional product. The JLR group under the Tata ownership is doing fantastic work. Mm -hmm. But back in the early 2000s, the Jaguar product was total garbage. It had limited appeal. It had terrible reputation. The cost was super high. Um, and ultimately, that was the brand they decided to front. So maybe it would have been more successful if they'd marketed a more broadly appealed brand. And I think one of the things that Americans forget or don't know is that Ford themselves is a massive brand in the UK. Like the Ford Focus and the Ford Fiesta and those compact cars, they eat up a huge chunk of market share. And I think sometimes we really think about Ford as being a North American domestic manufacturer that maybe doesn't have that imprint nope. in other countries. Not the case. Now, I would love to see it. Whether we're going to see it, I don't know or not. But it kind of leads into our next question, actually. Well, before we get into the next uh, question, we, we do have to take a break. But before we do that, I just wanted to to add on to that. I mean, Jaguar, before that, were they not Stewart yeah, they were. one which was uh, you know put together by Paul Stewart and Jackie Stewart, Jackie, three-time world champion, who raced uh, for, for Tyrrell back in the 60s and 70s. And when he won his world championships and had his success in Formula One, were powered by... Ford Cosworth, and uh, he maintained those uh, those relationships with the Ford Motor, uh, Ford Motor Company. Pardon me, over the years, over the decades, 
And when they came back into or when they took uh, Stuart Racing, because they were racing in other formulas, uh, junior formulas, when they uh, started a Formula One team, they had those uh, Ford engines and they rebranded to, uh, to, to Jaguar. And then, as you say, uh, you, know, you kind of laid it out how badly that uh, that was all run, which was kind of sad. Anyways, let's take a, a quick break here. When we come back, we'll uh, preview the uh, the French Grand Prix. You've got some, One question. some questions One question. to read out. What's that? Go for uh, it. Have we got time? We got to take a break. Let's take yeah. a quick break and then we'll do your cool. question. Okay, so we'll be right back. Don't go away, guys. We're going to be back in no time at all. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. It's uh, question time for the uh, for, for the time being. Uh, Mark, you, you're all eager to go. Uh, what do you got for So us? this question I actually got from three different people, and I've received it so many really? times now. I thought we should probably address this one. Um Address this one on the air. So the first question is this. If F1 can have 26 cars on the grid or 13 teams, why aren't there 13 teams? And then the second question that we always get is, does a team have to have two cars on the grid? And I think that the answer is this. It's not that F1 doesn't want 13 teams. It ultimately just comes down to the economics of standing up a team. And what we saw with Haas is that the other teams weren't willing to share in prize money for a first-year team. The other thing is that the way that the current Concord Agreement is structured is that only teams in the top 10 can share in prize money. So if I'm going to stand up a Formula One team, it's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. It's going to be an incredibly expensive affair. There's no guarantee that I'm ever going to see an ROI on that investment. And then if I don't perform well, I may not see any money anyways from a championship points perspective. The other point too is from a driver perspective. So the other question, and this one actually came specifically from Broncos Elite. Um, Yeah, this one came specifically from Broncos Elite. But the question is, could a team run an operation with a single driver? So I wasn't 100% certain. So I went to the... I went to the sporting regulations to kind of get a better sense of this. And specifically, Mm -hmm. the language is really, hey, each competitor may have no more than two cars available for use at any time during an event. But there doesn't seem to be any real clear guidelines about whether a team could run a single car operation. The reality is, though, that it would make no financial sense to do it. If you're standing up an organization to build one car and you're allowed two, you build two because it doubles the chances that you're going to be able to score constructors points and cash in on the prize money at the end of the season. If you build an organization to race one car, which is the kind of thing we see in Indy, you're you're at an immediate financial disadvantage because you have half the capacity to score points and score podiums that you would as any other team on the grid. So even if you could, you would never do it just because it doesn't make any fiscal sense. Anything I missed? Anything you want to add? No, I, I think that you've uh, touched on it, uh, you know, uh, you know, perfectly right there. I mean, the, like we've said before, these cars, I mean, they are incredibly uh, unique. I mean, all the parts that are designed and built, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's frightfully expensive. I mean, it's going to be expensive uh, regardless, uh, you know, if you're building one or two. But I would imagine it's if you're already spending the money to buy or build one car, I can't imagine totally. that it's going to be 
the the, the same amount to build the second car. But uh, it just uh, from from a financial point of view, it just would seem so cost prohibitive. And also, you know, the kind of an interesting twist on this is that we're not really all that far removed in in, in recent times that um, they were actually putting out there even just a couple of years ago, perhaps even you know allowing the teams to run totally. three cars. Whereas, you know, if you're Ferrari or Mercedes and you've got tons of money that, yeah, you could probably do that where some of the, the, the smaller teams, you know, think like your Hasses, your Williams and teams like that, where like, yeah, we're, we're struggling just to get uh, two teams on the uh, on the grid and race with those. So, yeah, please don't go to, uh, you know, make us rate as a third car because we just couldn't uh, couldn't do it. Cool. All right. So you got another one for us? It looks like it or no. Nope, I'm good to go. Oh, you're good to go. Okay, well, let's uh, talk about uh, the, the the race this uh, weekend. First of all, I just wanted to remind everybody, let me just uh, grab everything. So before we get into it, a uh, quick reminder on the driver standings. Got Max on top uh, in first, 105 points. Lewis second with 101. Sergio Perez, 69. Lando Norris, a fourth in the driver's uh, championship with 66. Charles Leclerc rounded out the top five with 52. On the constructors' side, still, well, I mean, it's obviously very close in the drivers, but was interesting after Baku was, despite all the drama and everything like that, uh, Red Bull was actually able to open up that gap at the top of the Constructors uh, Championship. So Red Bull, 174 points compared to Mercedes in second with 148. Ferrari, third with 94. McLaren, 92. And then Alpha Tauri rounding out the top five with uh, 39 points. And before we talk about the race, I just wanted to read some stats off uh, for Sequia Paul Ricard. So this is a track that is uh, 5.8 kilometers long. We're going to have uh, 53 laps this weekend, which is uh, just over 309.6 kilometers. Lap record was set in 2019 by Sebastian Vettel in the Ferrari. It was a 132.740. So Pirelli, they are bringing their mid-range of their compounds. They're bringing the C2 hards, the C3 mediums, and the C4 softs. And I know we were talking about it um uh, well, a couple of days ago here that uh, just about the track itself, but since uh, and just the sort of the, the, the racing that we're going to see, but since we've uh, returned to Paul Ricard, because after remember, we did not have a French Grand Prix, which I still find mind boggling from the 2009 to oh 2017. Yeah, for that long, more than almost a decade that uh, there was not a French Grand Prix. So Lewis has won the race there the past two years. Well, not the past two years, 2018, 19. Obviously, French Grand Prix was uh, was not held last year because of the pandemic, and then previously uh, to that, I mean, the, the the race was run by Felipe Massa in two thousand eight, driving Ferrari; two thousand seven, Kimi Raikkonen driving Ferrari; two thousand and six, Michael Schumacher driving a Ferrari, and um, yeah, it, uh, it it's back in France, and I I do have some mixed feelings about it. I I think that this uh, this is a circuit that is very interesting. I mean, you got the Mistral straight at the back about a mile just over a mile long just uh, 1.8 kilometers long i believe it is <coughs> excuse me but they have the chicane about uh not quite halfway uh, down just because the, the the speeds would be too high it is an interesting track it is it, it's not very wide it's a very compact uh, layout i mean so typically you see circuits that are a big loop out on a complex this one is very narrow very um very tight it winds back in on itself and despite some of the the tight corners and stuff like that 
it doesn't actually lend for a lot of overtaking. And despite a lot of the, uh, the, the, the drama that we can see in the opening laps, because you go from start finish into a very slow left, right combo. And then you get into sort of a hairpin at the sort of about, uh, about a third of the way around the lap. There, there aren't really too many opportunities uh, for, for overtaking. And, they haven't really been the most exciting races the past couple of years. Hoping it changes this weekend, but, you know. I remember back in 2019, Nico Hulkenberg had made some comments about this being the worst type of track because it brings out the worst in F1. It's it's a bunch of super long, medium speed corners, which are the hardest for enabling cars to follow each other, the hardest for overtaking. It's also just, and, and this is more just cosmetic, but... If you look at the track, it looks weird. And I get, again, cosmetics shouldn't matter if there's great racing, but it's basically a gigantic, like 100 acre slab of pavement. And then what they do is they paint the whole thing blue, but they run a racetrack through it. So what that means is that there's a ton of margin for error because if you go off the track, if you exceed the track limits, if you spin, you just spin on the tarmac and you can drive back on. There's places where there are hundreds of meters of tarmac between between the track and a fence. So there's no risk of a crash. There's no grass. There's no sand trap. It's ultra low risk. And presumably that would incent the drivers to push a little bit harder. But again, because the track is so challenging from a construction perspective to overtake, it doesn't matter necessarily if they do, but I would, I would be a much bigger fan of this track if they tore up all that tarmac, put down grass and put down sand traps, because at least it introduces Mm -hmm. uh, a risk of some more unpredictable racing. The other thing that's really interesting about this track, though, is it's only a two hour drive from Monaco, but it's relatively speaking based on French population bases. It's four and a half hours from Toulouse. It's seven and a half hour drive from Paris. It's really peculiar that we finally have a French Grand Prix, but we nestle it right in the southern coast next to monaco and we don't basically put it somewhere where we can tap into the bigger metropolitan areas of of france it's it's an interesting place to put it i remember the first year we went back which i think you said was 17 was 17 the first year we went back or 18 uh 2018. Yeah, 2018, there was tons of questions about the logistics of getting people in and getting people out, but the crowd seemed to have been okay. But ultimately, it just seems like a weird place to put it that you would go basically head to head with Monaco because Monaco was what a month ago and now we're going to host a race in the same region. I just feel like if I was a French race organizer, I'd want to put a track closer to Paris, but ultimately if they sell out, I guess it doesn't matter. I think for me, it's the look of the track. It's the feel of the track. It's not built for modern cars. Um, hopefully it's unpredictable. Hopefully it maybe rains this weekend, but I, I'm not super, super excited. But again, one of our listeners made a really great point, which was forget what happens on the track. Consider what's happening in this championship standings right now. That should itself mm-hmm. lend a sense of intrigue to the proceedings. And that listener was 100% right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's going to be interesting to see what happens on the track. I mean, maybe this one, it's uh, it's not so much like we see in Monaco where, you know, your, your qualifying is, uh, you know, so critical because, you know, you're not going to have an opportunity to make, uh, make up places. I mean, th- this isn't a track that's as drastic uh, when it comes to tra- track position and qualifying as uh, Monaco and maybe Hungary or a track, uh, you know, a road track like that. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, still, uh, it's 
It is a little bit fr- frustrating to watch. I mean, uh, w- when I think about uh, the the past couple of uh, you know races that we've had there in eighteen and nineteen, I mean, the one race that really stands out is in twenty nineteen, which was Lando's uh, rookie year, when he had like that hyd- hydraulic issue right at the very end, and he was able to hang on and still finish uh, somewhere in the uh, I- in the points right at the back there. I can't remember exactly what it was. I mean, he was running pretty good, and then he sort of like uh, sort of filtered down through the uh, <laughs> through the race order there, but still managed to uh, uh, score some points. But, you know, it, it is, um, yeah, you know, it, it is what it is, right? And, oh, sorry, he didn't. I'm just checking. He actually uh, finished uh, 11th, which, uh, oh, no, sorry, that is the the, the standings. Anyways, I'm not going to go through it uh, too much right now. But if that, you know, if, if the one thing sort of the really stands out in my mind is somebody that sort of struggled to bring the car home that was, uh, you know, experiencing some, some, some mechanical issues kind of tells you everything you really need to know about the, the action on the track. But ultimately, I mean, all the eyes will be on Lewis. All the eyes will be on Max this uh, weekend. I mean, just going back to the drama that we had uh, a couple of weeks ago in Baku, I mean, it, it was it was just the way that the pendulum swung back and forth. I mean, Max has that tire issue. He crashes. His race is over. It just uh, sort of seems that uh, all of a sudden it's set up 100%. Uh, you know, it's going to fall in Lewis's uh, laps that uh, he's going to be able to, um, uh, you know... It, Almost win that uh, race. I don't want to say undeservedly, uh, undeservedly because you know <laughs> things just don't happen. But I mean, the, the the good fortune was just incredible, and then that dramatic restart. I mean, when, when it came down to it, had you asked me even ten laps into that race, do you foresee a scenario that neither Max Verstappen nor Lewis Hamilton would score a single world championship point in this race? I would have laughed at you, and then I would have uh, I would have mocked you, and then I would have laughed again. But that's completely what happened, and uh, it uh, it was just so dramatic. And I think that you know both of them. I mean, obviously that gap, uh, that four point gap, uh, you remained static from Monaco to uh, Azerbaijan and now to France. But uh, both of them are are going to want to make a you know make up for what happened a couple of weeks ago. Max obviously had the opportunity to increase his championship lead and it didn't work out that way. And uh Lewis uh was not able to close that the small gap and reclaim the the uh, the the lead in the championship. So it's gonna be it's going to be a follow-up from that and they're going to build on that. And I'm just hoping that what we've seen through the first half dozen dozen races of the year just continues to keep going all all season long and i'm hoping it's going to continue i wonder if we look back at the 2021 season and that moment at baku Mm -hmm. is malaysia from 2016 you know and again that 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 engine failure wasn't a hamilton wasn't his fault but it happened and he basically lost all of the points that he would have secured in that race which would have potentially put him over the top yeah i wonder if we look back and this was that moment for 2021. And again, that so forget the fact that it maybe isn't the most exciting track. What's exciting is we have a championship battle. And that should lend some degree yep. of intrigue. So hopefully at the end of the race, it's less about, hey, Mercedes took a 1-2. They're 150 points up in the championship. But hey, it was a Max Lewis battle. And ultimately, Max won. And it, it kind of gives them a little bit more space in the chat. Like, that should be what we're talking about. And hopefully what we're going to be talking about come Sunday. Yeah, you know, and to the, the the track is interesting because we haven't really seen a track like this. I mean, uh, Baku has that obviously that very long start finish uh, straightaway, and um, you know, then you've got like the city portion of the track, which is a, a little bit different. It's sort of Monaco esque, and then you kind of go back and look at some of the different tracks that we've been at this uh, year, like Imola, like Bahrain. 
and then uh, you know Portugal and Spain. So this is a little bit uh, different, uh, you know, to, to some of the different tracks. So I really don't know at this point uh, whether this is going to favor Mercedes or if this is going to favor Red Bull. It's it's going to be interesting to see what maybe some of the the, the practice times are closer to um, to qualifying on Saturday. I mean, when we have FP one uh, coming up here shortly, that's just the initial shakedowns and getting the car set up. It's going to be interesting to see though on Saturday when we get to FP3 what some of those times are looking at and uh, when, uh, when when they're a little bit more in their their qualifying trim and of course in qualifying itself and it uh, I, I really just hope like I say that this uh, this battle that we've seen over the past uh, couple of months uh, just keeps uh, going but like you say what what, what you thought uh, uh, happened at uh, at Baku was one of those uh, Malaysia 2016 moments because I felt that same thing when, when Max crashed I, I said that to my wife at the time that this could be that moment that uh, that Max looks back at the end of the year. That's yeah, that's where I lost it. And then at the end of the race, uh, we, we were saying the same thing. That uh, you know, I mean, there's only four points uh, between them. It's not like it's thirty or forty or twenty or something like that. I mean, the, the, the gap is still fairly small. But the point is, they left points out on the table. And if they keep going like this, this championship could very well be decided by a very very yeah, slim I margin. I completely agree. Completely agree. One other point too that's unrelated to the race, but uh, may intrigue our listeners. Did you know that our listeners refer to me as the excited one and as you as or to you as the chill one? Yeah. The chill one. Oh, yeah. No, I saw the tweet last night and uh, I, I didn't read. Uh, I, I was kind of interested by that, uh, that uh, that yeah, they thought you were the excited one. Like, um, I don't think it yeah, was a compliment. I, I, I guess don't, maybe- don't think I was getting a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I've, you know, I, I guess maybe... Uh, being the chill one is a good thing. Fortunately, nobody said that we were the annoying one. They said, well, you know, no, nobody said that. Uh, so I guess, you know, for the moment, we can uh, both claim to being cool. the annoying one. Fair, so fair. there you go. All right. That's all I got. Uh, do, I, I'm giving you a chance to do a uh, MotoGP quarter. Nothing from MotoGP quarter this week. I'm not prepared. I'm so sorry. I, I, don't, I don't think, I don't think I've disappointed <laughs> any of our listeners. And I, I even commented on Twitter that is basically the only real value I bring to the show. And I haven't done one in a month, but I promise, I promise I'll have one for, uh, for Sunday, which means probably next Thursday. All right. Next Thursday. There you go. All right, guys. Well, that's great. Uh, thank you for uh, for checking in. Thank you for uh, listening to the podcast and uh, for checking out the live stream on uh, on Twitter. Or sorry, on, on Twitter, on uh, YouTube. Um, that's uh, really enjoyed being able to interact with everybody and uh, and talk to you guys all the time, especially on the live chat. I think it's great. Uh, anyways, uh, that's it. That's a wrap on behalf of myself, uh, Chill Mark, and on behalf of Excited Mark. Thank you all for listening and watching. Enjoy the race on Sunday, and we'll be back on Sunday night to, to recap it. And uh, hopefully we'll have an exciting and a good race to talk about. Until then, have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you guys again in a couple of days. Bye for now. <laughs>